Okay, I hope everybody enjoyed chapter one. I hope to get better at reading these uh, chapters as well. But this whole chapter here is chapter two. It's called Earner for the Mob. As Larry sat on the plane headed for basic training in Pataluma, California, he couldn't believe how free he felt. He was on his own for the first time, though in a very real way he had been on his own pretty much his whole life. He may have entered the Coast Guard as a 132-pound baby-faced kid, but looks are deceiving. He was strong and tough. He could do 100 push-ups without breaking a sweat, and it wasn't long after arriving in California that he started growing and putting on muscle. Boot camp lasted 10 weeks. During that time, he turned 18 on October 3rd, 1979. Lawton loved the regimen. An early bird, he enjoyed getting up at 5.30 in the morning and doing calisthenics as the sun was coming up. The only part of military life he didn't enjoy was the bad vibes he and other New Yorkers got from the Southerners and Midwesterners. Lawton never got into a fight, but he enjoyed taking on some of his distractors in push-up challenges. The two would go face to face to see who could do the most. Lawton almost always won as the loser sank ingloriously into the dirt. After 10 weeks, he returned to the Bronx on leave. When he arrived home on a 14-day leave, he was thinking he had returned a man. His first duty station was Cortez, Florida, near Bradenton. He was a seaman apprentice, and he was assigned to a 41-foot, three-man search and rescue boat. Most of his duties involved around towing disabled boats back to shore and putting out boat fires. Not long after he began duty, his crew discovered several bales of marijuana floating, floating in the ocean towards shore. The skipper hid two of the bales under a bridge on a catwalk and turned in the rest. Not long afterward, the boat captain handed Larry a stack of $100 bills. Said Lawton, the other two guys did it. I was a go-along guy. I was loving it. With that money, I ended up buying my first car, a big maroon Mercury Marquis. They gave me three grand. That was big money. During his time with the Coast Guard, Lawton was witness to three historic tragedies in Florida maritime history. The first came on January 28, 1980, when the 180-foot-long Blackthorn, a Coast Guard buoy tender, collided head-on with the large tanker. The anchor of the tanker ship was embedded into the hull of the Coast Guard ship, and as the tanker sailed on, the Blackthorn turned over and sank in 90 seconds killing 23 men on board. It took 30 days to raise the Blackthorn, and Lawton's Coast Guard station was part of the salvage operation. Lawton helped carry the body, ba body bags from a barge to a ship that took them to shore. The second event, which began in April 1980 and lasted for several months, was the desperate rescue of Freedom Flotilla from Cuba. 10,000 Cubans had stormed the Peruvian embassy asking for asylum. And when the Peruvian embassy refused to force them to leave, Fidel Castro announced that anyone who wished to leave Cuba could. Cuban Americans then flooded the port of Mariel with small pleasure boats, commercial shrimping boats, fishing boats, unsteady rafts, and even inner tubes tied to pieces of wood to bring their relatives and anyone else who wanted to leave Cuba to southern Florida. President Jimmy Carter announced that America would welcome them all. Before it was over, 125,000 Cubans fled to the United States. 
Hundreds of small crafts made their way towards Key West, but not all of them made it. Lawton, who was part of the largest Coast Guard operation in peacetime American history, was part of an armada of ships that struggled mightily to save as many of the refugees as they could. I was sent to the Coast Guard station down in Key West called the Navy Mole. We were among the first people that sent there. We were rescuing those Cuban people coming in and we got a lot of joy and satisfaction from helping them. But at the same time, it was very sad. The official count of those who drowned was 40, but Lawton knows for a fact the casualties were in the hundreds, if not thousands. It was definitely more than 40. There's so many boats that, you, that were just floating empty or burnt holes in the water. It was really sad and to this day, I have a very, uh, I feel a lot of sympathy for the Cuban people who put the, everything they owned and their kids on inner tubes to get there. How bad was Cuba at that time? It must have been terrible. If not thousands, and you can ask anyone who was there, there were dozens of boats that left Cuba that never were seen again. I saw many dead people floating on inner tubes. Many times I saw boats on fire and the people on board dead. For the Coast Guard men who had to dispose of the bodies of those unfortunate not to survive, the scene was gruesome and unsettling. We saw dead bodies. We stacked bodies on the back of the some boats. One boat had 30 people on it and it caught fire and many of them died. Some of the Coast Guardsmen had to go to psychologists for counseling. I was okay, or at least I thought I was. I had a tough stomach. The third tragic event occurred in the early morning of May 1980 when the 600-foot-long freighter Summit Venture, riding in a violent rain squall with near zero visibility and fighting wind gusts of up to 80 miles an hour, struck a piling of the southbound span of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge in St. Petersburg, Florida, knocking down 1,200 feet of the road. Six cars and a Greyhound bus traveling from Chicago to Miami fell 150 feet into the water below. 35 people, including 23 passengers on the bus, died. Lawton's boat patrolled the waters during the 30-day rescue operation and assisted in the salvage crew. They recovered debris, victims' belongings, baby shoes, kids, toys, suitcases, and purses and handbags, and bodies, a lot of bodies. Lawton, not content to be a seaman, applied and was accepted to Boatswain School in Yorktown, Virginia. He graduated with the rank of Petty Officer Third Class. His next assignment was at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, a boat captain. He was assigned to a small search and rescue boat. He rescued a lot of people and earned medals, but because Sandy Hook was a short car ride to his old haunts in the Bronx and Brooklyn, he had an easy access to his mob friends. Being in the military didn't curb his excesses. One time on, the, on a bet, he drove naked from Sandy Hook, New Jersey to the Bronx, New York, on his motorcycle at speeds of 100 miles an hour. I flew through the toll booth, said Lawton. I won my bet. It was 100 bucks. In 1981, that was a lot of money. I was flying down the New Jersey Turnpike, Garden State Parkway, all the way to the Bronx, flying through the tolls on the Garden State, going through the tolls, even the George Washington Bridge to get to the Bronx. And I was naked, and I couldn't bring pants. When I got there, people had clothes for me, and I had a 100 buck bet I won. Uh, it's crazy that you think you'd do something like that. I mean, you didn't burn yourself, but it, it was crazy, but I did it. 
His next stop was Hawaii, and from his base in Honolulu, he was signed to the 378-foot Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis, which patrolled the waterways of Alaska. The Jarvis was sent to enforce the 200-mile Fisheries Conservation Act, protecting America's seas from Japanese and Russian boats illegally fishing the fish in the 200-mile Fisheries Conservation Zone. One of Lawton's jobs on the ship was ordering supplies, and he would divert some of those goods all the way to his mob friends in the Bronx and in Brooklyn. I had 50 guys on that ship working for me, and I used to order all the supplies, the rope, paint, paintbrushes, and I could send it anywhere I wanted. I sent it back to Brooklyn. I didn't get paid a dime. I was getting on the inn. I did it because I could, and because I knew down the line the favors would come back to me in spades. Lawton's plan was to stay in the Coast Guard 20 years, but during one of the cutter stops of a Russian factory ship made during stormy weather, he fell and was badly injured. Lawton was standing on the deck of a Russian ship when it was struck by a powerful wave. Lawton lost his footing and fell 20 feet into one of the ship's fishing holds, landing on his back. I was lucky. I fell on the fish and not steel, but it still hurt. They pulled me out of there, but right away I could tell it I was hurt. My back was all messed up. I couldn't walk, and I had numbness in my legs. The Coast Guard doctors discovered I also had scoliosis, curvature of the spine, and he was sent to the Coast Guard base on Governor's Island, New York. Lawton would then travel back and forth to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland. He was assigned to Fort Totten on the Long Island side of the Throgs Neck Bridge, not far from his Bronx home, but because of his medical condition, he didn't have to live there. Lawton remained based based there for eight months while the Coast Guard decided what to do with him. I was on the payroll of the Coast Guard, but I had no one to report to, nowhere to go, nothing to do. I was living in Brooklyn with my brother David in an apartment. While still a member of the Coast Guard, Lawton took advantage of his mob connections and became an associate of the Gambino crime family. The Gambino clan was run by Paul Castellano in Dece- until December of 1985 when he was gunned down while eating at Spark Steakhouse by men hired by John Gotti. Lawton became a bartender at one of the mob-owned lounges with the blessing of my maid man, Dominic Ganji, who was close to Castellano. While there, Lawton began his education in the bookmaking business. While I was still in the Coast Guard, I was told by Dominic, go to Luke's Piano Lounge on Union Turnpike in Queens, and you'll be taken care of. They're expecting you. I then started bartending and really learning the bookmaking business. His teacher was one of the best, Mac the Bookie, the biggest bookie in all of New York. Mac set up shop at Luke's Piano Lounge, said Lawton, and all the bookies from around New York City would lay their money off to him. A bookie doesn't gamble. A bookie takes bets on any game in any sport and doesn't care who wins. He takes money on both sides and he makes his 10% from the VIG. But if the betting is running 50000 on one team and 20000 on the other, he better lay the difference off. you got to lay that 30000 off, otherwise you become a gambler. Who do you lay it off to? Vegas isn't going to just take it like that. They don't know what line you're going to negotiate. You negotiate the line and lay the difference off with Mac the bookie. He was the layoff guy for New York. Mac was a Jew who had a lot of juice because all of the big bosses re- respected him for his brains and his ability to make money. He was an older guy with white hair. Whenever I was there, I'd run next door to the deli to get him a toasted English muffin with cream cheese and jelly. I remember it like it was yesterday. Hey kid, 
go get me a cream cheese and jelly. And I knew exactly what it was, and I'd run from the place and go get it. Mac was highly respected, but he was tough. The guys who used to take bets from John Gotti, who was a big gambler, would call him, and he'd say to them, I don't give a fuck if John is betting. You better pay me. Because who's going to call up John Gotti and tell him he has to pay? What if John Gotti didn't pay? What are you going to do? So Mac would say, I don't care who it is. I'm going to collect it from you. So the guy calling in the bet knew that Mac was coming to him for the money. So Gotti might duck him, but you can't duck Mac. Lawton's bookmaking operation was small. Most of the bets he took were for $1,000 or less. He learned how to take bets and how to get the line. A customer would call and say, give me a nickel on the Giants. That meant he, he wanted to bet $500 on the Giants. I want a dime. A dime is a $1,000 bet. Give me a 20-time parlay. That's two teams. One time is $5. So a 20-time bet is $100, plus the VIG, of course. Give me a round robin. That's a bet on three teams. Lawton would take the action from $25 to $1,000 bets. After his apprenticeship at Luke's Piano Lounge, Larry moved his bookie operation from Queens to Brooklyn, where he set up shop at another mob-controlled bar called The Home Stretch, an old-time bar on Kings Highway and West 10th Street. The bar was one long room. On the left was a jukebox, and there was a couple of tables where the boys would play cards. On the wall is a big painting, a horse racing down, and is well known to anybody in the area. It's a big mural on the side of the wall right there, a bunch of horses coming down the stretch. It's really, really nice. In the back of the bar was a Skittle machine and a Joker poker machine that paid off, actual paid off back then. The home stretch was home base for Dominic Ganji and the bar owner, Willie Ventura, whose nickname was Willie the Weeper. He was called that because Willie was always bitching about something or other. Willie was my mentor, said Lawton. I looked up to him. He had a loan shocking operation, ran the numbers, bookmaking, broads. He ran the place. He owned the whole building, including the two apartments above the home stretch bar. He worked directly for Dominic. Larry needed the protection of the Gambinas to do business. You had to be connected to one mob or another, because if you aren't, and if you were making good money, other mobsters in New York would know about you, know you were a big time earner, and they would kidnap you or torture you for your money. One way or another, they'd find out where you hid the money. But if you were connected with one of the mob families, then you were protected because you were kicking upstairs and everybody wants to protect their own interests. Some guys were associated with the mob just because they like to be involved. A mob boss might say to him, go do this. These are flunkies or hanger-ons, and there are a lot of them. I was an associate of the Gambino crime family. I wasn't a made man, but I was protected. I was what you called an earner. For every dollar I made, I kicked something up to my boss, Dominic. I always paid him something. Greedy guys might have tried to get away with less, but I didn't want to risk Dominic finding out I was shorting him. If he thought I was screwing with him, I'd have bad vibes, and bad vibes can shorten your life. The home stretch bar, like all mob-owned bars, was a world unto its own. Almost every day, someone would walk into the place with hot merchandise. Guys who used to rob tractor trailers full of stuff always had ways to get rid of the merchandise. Some of them had outs up and down the avenue, selling to stores. They may have 10 guys selling the stuff out of their trunks on consignment. Those guys would come, come into the home stretch bar. 
If a guy walked in and said, Johnny from 18th Avenue sent me, okay. He wouldn't lie about Johnny because if I go back and say, Johnny, thanks for the hit. And Johnny says, send what fucking guy down? Then the guy's in big trouble because then Johnny didn't get his kickback. Everybody's involved gets a kickback. A couple of times a guy came into the bar who wasn't connected and we'd rob him. He'd come in and say, hey, I have something to show you. And we'd say, okay, and take the guy inside. And while we were talking, we had another guy emptying his trunk because he wasn't connected. I was violent and I was smart. A lot of guys were just stupid violent. And these were the guys who never made it. They ended up going to jail or getting whacked. Eventually, everyone in the mob either goes to prison or gets killed. But the smart one lasts a little while. I grew up with no money. I learned how to hustle to make money. John Gotti had nothing. And he learned and he was smart. But today, the sons of the fathers who had, who had made millions are spoiled. They didn't learn how to hustle from the street like their fathers. They don't have the con game. And they aren't smart criminals. That's why the mob today is not what it used to be. The younger generation isn't hungry. And therefore, they never learned how to be a real gangster. Plus, they're all rat. There's too many rats in the business. I never ratted. In addition to bookmaking, Lawton became a loan shark, lending money at an exorbitant interest to those who desperately needed it. Let me explain loan sharking, said Lawton. It's exactly what the credit card companies do today. When you borrow money, you have to pay back their three points a week. It doesn't sound like much, but it is. Say I lend a guy 10 grand. He would have to pay me $300 a week. Every week, he has to give me $300, and that doesn't come off the principal. That's 3% weekly. Lawton's customers were those who couldn't get a loan from a bank. Often they were customers with cash businesses. It might be a candy store owner or a bar owner or a business where they get a lot of cash and they don't uh, pay their sales taxes. They need money to pay the sales taxes. But they can't go to the bank and get a loan because they're making a lot of that money under the table. And they aren't showing much of a profit on the books. So they come to me. Or my customers might be drug dealers who are the best because eventually I know I'll get my money even if they don't pay me right away. The only way I get beat is if they go to jail or I get killed. They were the best customers, drug dealers. A lot of them are also gamblers and gamblers lose and too often at some point they no longer can pay. I'd loan Shark 20000 to a business owner because his sales tax was due. He'd tell me, I'll give it back in a month. I'd say, here's 20000 I want 600 a week every Friday. You know what happens in six months, right? Oh yeah, you got it? Some guys pay on time, and if they pay in a month, I made 2400 on my money and get my twenty grand back. Where can you make interest like that in a month? But what if he couldn't pay? After six months, I would increase his points to 5%. And if this guy who owes me twenty grand now is paying me 1000 a week, I'd say, I'll give you six more months, and then I want my fucking 20 grand. He's paying me 1000 a week. In 26 weeks, I make 26000 and he still owes me 20 grand. Then I'd say, now we have a problem. I want your business, or I want something. I once took a guy's boat. I had a guy hook it up to a trailer and drive it off. You'll get your boat when I get my money. He found the money. They all do. Lawton was very effective at collecting from his own debtors. As an associate, he also had the job of collecting from those who owed his mob bosses. 
He provided muscle for the card games, the dice games, and the rest of the gambling operation at Luke's Piano Lounge. When someone owed money and didn't pay, I got the call. Lawton had entered the Coast Guard at 5'6 and 132 pounds, but after seven years of service to his country, he had grown to almost 6 feet and 200 pounds of solid muscle. He was a force to be reckoned with. His first gamut was to send a message to pay up by throwing a cinder block through the windshield of a debtor's car. That usually worked, but if it didn't, the next step was blowing up the car. One guy didn't pay for a while, and I wanted to show him what was going to happen, said Lawton. His car was parked in the neighborhood. At night, when no one was around, I took a cinder block and put it under the car's gas tank. I put a can of sterno on the cinder block and lit it. After a while, depending on how much gas is in the tank, less gas, more fumes, quicker explosion. Those sternos are the things that go under uh, food at, at catering events. And if you put them on a cinder block, nobody could see, and it's not a high flame under the car. It just heats that gas in the tank until it expands. Another time, a better who owed Lawton $500 made every excuse imaginable in addition to making the mistake of trying to duck me. You didn't want to owe me money, he said. I caught the guy outside the home stretch and beat him down and laid his arm on the curb. I step, stepped on it like a twig. His bone was sticking out of his arm. He was screaming, and the guys in the bar took him to the hospital. He didn't say a word. He knew better. I got in trouble from Dominic about that. Not because I broke his arm, because I did in front of the home stretch bar. Dominic said, you fucking idiot, what are you doing? You're going to bring heat around here. What the fuck are you doing? I don't give a fuck. Shoot the motherfucker. I don't give a shit. But don't do it in front of the bar. In September 1986, while technically still in the Coast Guard, Lawton was sitting at the Turquoise Bar on 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn when in walked a hot-looking girl by the name of Rosalind Giordano. He was 26, she was 19. She was a good-looking girl, had the Italian look, and was well-respected. She came from a good family. Lawton also liked her because she worked in a bank. She was a teller at the York Savings and Loan on 3rd Avenue. At night, I would dream about how I was going to rob it. A year later, on September 11, 1987, they were married at Regina Pace's Church, a beautiful edifice on 65th Street between 13th and 14th Avenue in Brooklyn in an old Italian neighborhood. The priest informed Lawton the church was booked on the Friday he was going to get married. You want to talk about corrupt Catholic priests? I gave the priest two grand and he switched the date for, for the other couple. They had a typical extravaganza Bob wedding which was attended by members of both the Gambino and Colombo crime families. The bride's father, who worked as a foreign exchange broker in Noonan, Ashley and Pierce, arranged to rent the limousine owned by Carmine Persico, head of the Colombo family. Lenny, Lawton's future father-in-law, knew, knew the people at Romanique, a mob-owned limo business in Brooklyn on 11th Avenue and 67th Street. After everyone sang Ave Maria, such a beautiful song, the bride and groom took off in Carmine Persico's limousine. On the way, Lawton ordered the driver to take him to the home stretch. While his bride stayed in the car, Larry and his brother David got out and had a few drinks with the guys at the bar. They then got back in the limo and proceeded to their reception at the Oriental Manor, another notorious mob-owned business. Standing guard at the door were two brutes named Bruno and Nettie, 
muscle for the Gambino mob. Lawton was partying with Lenny, his new brother-in-law, doing coke in the bathroom when Lawton's father-in-law walked in on them. He never said a word, and I always had a lot of respect for him for that, said Lawton. He knew I was wrong, and I know I was wrong, but words didn't have to be said. Never forget that. He walked in on his new son-in-law and his son doing coke in the bathroom, and they were looking for us, looking for me to cut the cake. So he talked about crazy. During the reception, one of Lawton's pals from the Coast Guard became drunk and out of control. Bruno walked over to Lawton and in a heavy Italian accent asked him, Do you want me to take care of him? Bruno, a stone cold killer loved me, said Lawton. He could barely speak English. One time he took me to his house and showed me all his guns taped up with the wrapped handles so I didn't leave fingerprints. Another time Bruno was losing at a poker machine at the home stretch and he shot it. Literally took out his gun and started popping the machine. We got Bruno a job at the Diamond Exchange, and he got mad and shot his boss in the ass. So when Bruno wanted to know if I wanted him to take care of my friend in the Coast Guard, I immediately ran to my boss, Willie the Weeper. Willie, will you please take care of this fucking nut? Bride and groom honeymooned on a cruise to the Bahamas. After they returned, Larry decided he owed it to his new bride to get away from his wise guy life and go straight. He moved to Fort Lauderdale near Miami on the east coast of Florida, where his aunt got him a job with the phone company as a 411 operator. People called for information and he gave it to them. He lasted on a job for six months. The lack of action drove him crazy. Back then they had operators dial 411 for information. I don't think they do that anymore. His father-in-law had given the newlyweds $30,000 money Lawton spent to buy and open a pizzeria in North Lauderdale, Florida. The pizza business also was to try to tame Lawton. I tried to lead a legit life, but I couldn't do it. It was too boring. I needed action. The action he craved came from the boys at the home stretch. Though he was living in Florida, anytime Dominic Ganja or Willie the Weeper beckoned him back to New York to perform a service, he came running. I lived in Florida and I would often get a phone call from New York, said Lawton. Often it involved my strong-arming someone who owed Dominic or Willie money. One time I was called to get a kid who robbed one of our bookies to tell us where the money was. Willie said, Larry, this guy robbed 75000 We know he did it. He's a 21-year-old kid around the corner. His friends told on him. He was with another guy. His friend knew somebody, so he definitely did it. Lawton said he'd take care of it. Get the fucking money, Larry, Willie said. I don't give a shit. Get the money. Never forget it. Lawton and another Gambino flunky grabbed the kid off the street and brought him back to the home stretch. They lifted up one of the steel plates on the sidewalk in the front of the bar and walked the kid down the steps leading to the basement under the bar. They dropped the plate. The room was soundproof. Lawton could work his charm without worrying that anyone could hear what was going on. Down in New York, under the streets, the sellers go front front of the stores, down under the store with steel gates that open. I tied his hands and legs behind his, behind his back against the chair, said Lawton. I unbuckled his pants and I pulled his pants all the way down to his ankles. I took the t-shirt he wore and pulled it up over his head and off. He was sitting there naked with his dick hanging out. I'll never forget this kid, his pants down on his ankles tied behind his back 
and he's naked, and he's just buck naked. Lawton said to Joe Cap, his accomplice, go get an iron and an extension cord. The kid began screaming, I didn't do it, I swear to God. Listen to me, Lawton said to the kid, we know you did it. Just tell me where the money is. I'll give you one warning. Trust me, my word is everything. No, I swear to God, said the kid, you have the wrong guy. The guy who told on me doesn't know. Listen to me, Lawton said. I'm telling you, we know it was you. The plugged-in iron was getting so hot, Lawton could feel its heat. He picked it up and looked in the kid's eyes. Where's the fucking money? I swear, the kid started to say, and before he could say another word, Lawton took the iron and pushed it on the kid's stomach, right b below his breast. His scream was horrific. I can hear it today and smell the flesh right on his chest. To this day, there's a guy running around with the shape of an iron on his chest. Lawton could see the fear in the kid's eyes. Lawton stared down at his dick and he looked back at him and he said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Lawton was holding the iron and looked back down at his dick. Lawton looked at him and said, where's the money? Looked straight at his penis looked in his eye and said, where's the money? Frantically, the kid said, 68th Street and 7th Avenue. It's in my apartment behind the bureau in my bedroom. You got the keys? I got the keys. Joe, grab the keys, Lawton said to his accomplice. I'll wait with him. 25 minutes later, Joe Cap returned with the money. There was 70000 left. The kid had spent the other 5000 Now let me ask you, Lawton said to the kid, was it worth you having that nice fucking iron mark on your chest? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go, and you tell your punk friends that anyone who ever fucks with one of our guys around here, they won't come out alive. Let him go, Joe, Lawton ordered. The kid was crying, said Lawton. He was really, really scared, and he had every right to be, and, he w and we let him go, and we never had another problem. Another time, Lawton was called up to New York because Willie the Weeper had bought a brand new 1991 Cadillac with the fancy chrome bumpers. And while he was visiting his mother down near Prospect Park, someone had stolen the bumpers off the car. I remember this incident real well. Unfortunately, unfortunately for the thief, a lady on the street saw who did it and left a note on the Willie, Willie's windshield saying, I saw the guy taking the bumper off your car, and she wrote down the thief's license plate number. Never went to the cops, mind you. Just left the note on the car. Said Lawton, we could find out who's belonged to the car because we had a had a cop on the payroll. The cop ran the plate, and we found the guy who did it lived right around the corner from the home stretch bar. He probably knew Willie. He had to be nuts to rob that car. Everybody knew Willie's car. We got the guy, and we brought him down to the cellar. We could, suit, we could see he knew he had fucked up bad. This kid almost shit his pants. He didn't do anything to him. We made him put Willie's bumper back on, and we made him a deal where whenever he robbed a bumper, he paid us 200 bucks per. We turned him into a robber for us. Why well, hurt him? The guy was good at robbing bumpers. He cut them clean as a whistle. He didn't scratch them. He knew never to screw with us because we knew all the chop shops he was selling the bumpers to. That's where the smarts come in. We made him a thief for us. We didn't abuse him. Wise guys can recognize other wise guys. Not long after Lawton opened his pizzeria in Fort Lauderdale. A man on the fringes of organized crime by the name of Paulie sought him out. Paulie, who drove a DeLorean, I'll never forget that nice, clean, it's a stainless steel car, DeLorean, 
owned a store that sold cell phones. He was also a small-time jewel robber. They were both New Yorkers, and they got to talking, and Paulie wanted to know if Larry was interested in buying some diamonds. Larry didn't know the first thing about jewelry, but he figured he was smart enough to figure it out. Paulie several times brought him diamond rings, which he brought cheap for cash. I started running hot diamonds out of the back of our pizzeria, said Lawton. I'd look at a ring and look at the Zales jewelry ads. Hey, this looks good. Robbing a diamond or two is what punks do. These guys are smashing grabbers. They go into a jewelry store, bust the display case, and run off with a handful of jewels. My guess is that Paulie or one of his guys was breaking into homes and taking private jewelry, and he'd bring it to me. Other people were also coming to me with jewelry they stole, and with my connections in New York, I was able to get rid of it. Sometimes the jewels would come from house robberies, three diamond rings, I didn't care where. I wasn't a petty guy, but I would take the jewels to Willie at the bar and I'd make a little money. I'm talking small, a few hundred. Seeing that Lawton was evolved with jewels, one day while he was at the home stretch, Willie the Weeper told him, hey, we got something going down in Florida for you. Here was a can't-miss scam right in his own backyard. They informed him that a jewelry store owner in Sunrise, Florida wanted him to rob, rob his own store so he could collect on the insurance. Willie the Weeper told him, we want you to rob it. You give us the diamonds and we'll give you a cut. Sounds good, said Lawton, who didn't ask how much of a cut or much of anything else. Lawton spent a few days casing the store. He saw what time the female employee arrived and when she left. He wasn't as thorough as he would be in a subsequent robberies because the owner was in on it. The female worker would be the only employee in the store who didn't know it was a setup. Willie the Weeper told him, do it as a real robbery in case you get caught. Make sure you clean out the safe and the counters. Make it a real robbery because it has to look legit. Lawton went in, looked around, and pulled out a gun. He said, this is a robbery. The girl sprinted for the back of the store. She was going for a gun. Lawton jumped over the counter, caught her, put her on the floor, and tied her up. Lawton knew in advance where the jewelry was going to be. There was a counter in the back of the store with shelves of jewelry. Lawton cleaned out the counter and shelves quickly, went to the safe and took everything. It was loaded with jewels. I'm sure the owner left everything in the safe, said Lawton. Lawton walked out of the back of the store with two pillowcases full of jewelry. He then went home, put them in a suitcase, drove to the airport, checked the bag, and flew to New York, arriving at his father-in-law's house in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Lawton spread hundreds of jewels on the bed. He gave a ring or two to his wife, a couple of pieces to his mother-in-law. Larry found a fence with the help from his mob buddies. He was told the address, and he drove to Little Italy in Manhattan to meet the men who were going to buy his jewelry. They were members of the Genovese crime family, and they agreed to drive to his father-in-law's home to see the jewelry and evaluate what the jewels were worth. When they arrived, the jewels were laid out on the dining room table. Lawton had no idea what they were worth but he decided he wanted 225000 for them. After a fierce negotiation, they haggled him down to 150000 The Genovese mobsters said they would bring the cash into his father's law house the next day. Lord didn't know these men, and he was concerned that they might try to rob the jewels and the money from him. He had his brother-in-law behind the bar waiting with a pistol and a shotgun. Larry also had a pistol. 
I was ready to kill people, said Lawton. It turned out that the fence was as concerned about the transaction as he was. He told Lawton, I didn't know what was going to happen to me, whether it was a cop setup or whether you were going to kill me. The transaction went flawlessly, and it was the first of many. One of the fence's men came in, handed Lawton a paper bag full of cash, and walked out with the jewels. In the bag was $150,000 in cash. After he walked away, I was pretty damn happy, said Lawton. With $150,000 in his safe, Lawton had enough dough to open his own bookie operation and to start loan sharking. It wasn't long before both businesses were flourishing, but Lawton still had the gambling bug. Starting businesses like that isn't hard. A guy knows you're in the gangster business, and, it, and he comes to you. Do you know where I can bet? Do you know where I can borrow some money? The loan sharking business would open Lawton up to a number of very lucrative scores. One of his first customers was a man who worked in a large warehouse. He had borrowed $3,000 from one of Lawton's several bookmakers. The bookie told Lawton, I know he can't pay. Lawton knew what the man did for a living and came up with the next move. Lawton had a guy named Junior, another man who worked for him, go to the Debra and tell him that he would pay off the $3,000 debt if the man was willing to pay him $90 a week and pay him back in full in six months. That, is that okay? Happily, the man agreed. Now the guy could get bet again, said Lawton. He's trying for the big score, and for a while he did win, but then there was a downturn, and he stopped paying. He was a typical gambler. Lawton told Junior to send the deb debtor to him. He has to come up with the 90, and on Friday he tells me he doesn't have it. Can I be a little patient? And when a guy's late a few days, I know he doesn't have the money. When, he's got, when he goes to the bookie to make another bet, the bookie cut him off. He still wants to gamble, but he has no way out. I know what he does for a living. This guy was the warehouse manager for Johnson Enterprises, which had a warehouse the size of a football field. The warehouse was located in Sunrise, Florida. I called him up and said to him, Listen, you owe me 3000 right? You want to get rid of the debt? What do you mean? He was all nervous. I said, here's what you do. On a Sunday, I'll get a truck and we'll go to your warehouse and you help us load it up. And, that, and that's the end of it. You're done with your debt. They will never know they were robbed. Okay, we'll do it. On a Sunday, Lawton rented a 32-foot-long rider renter truck, drove to the warehouse, and helped his crew load the truck. They took gold faucets, urinals, copper wire, three jacuzzis, one, of, one for his own house, and a double porcelain sink. Lawton drove the truck to New York and sold the merchandise for 70000 When he returned, he even gave the guy who owed him the money a few thousand dollars. And he was happy, said Lawton. As I predicted, they never knew they had been robbed. I think the guy still works for Johnson. I'm not kidding. But that's how you do it. You come up with those kinds of scams and make money. My biggest thing was I like to win. I was about beating the system. I was smarter than the average gangster. I knew how to hustle and make money. And as I end this chapter, thinking back of all the scams we used to come up with, it, it was everything. We'd get a guy into debt by gambling, and the guy would do something, owe us something, uh, own something that, or know of a score that, to tell us about, maybe a robbery or a back door. Uh, I remember one guy was a pizza truck driver when I owned the pizzeria. And he uh, 
wanted to get out of debt, so he left his truck wide open, and we robbed his truck, pretty much gave it to us, and we cleared his debt. There were a lot of different ways to get into people. Never saying it's right. Obviously, now I live a different life, but this is the book, and I have to go through the tough times uh, to let you know about the bad times and the good times coming up, but... I lived a wild life and lived a pretty large life. And you're going to get some more of that here uh, coming up when I was pretty wild partying. And girls, uh, girls, drugs, you name it. So I uh, hope you're enjoying it. Uh, stay tuned for Chapter 3 coming up. <laughs>